unscripted. Each episode is available to view on YouTube, so be sure to check us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. First Vision's got a big problem. Only Joseph Smith can tell it. I mean, there's just nothing besides Joseph Smith's statement. But in this case, you have this text to deal with. You can't just simply throw it away. Now, that's what most, I think most scholars that don't believe in the Book of Mormon just throw it away. They ignore it. But when you look at these details, the details are extremely important in demonstrating what's really going on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Saints Unscripted. Today we have with us Royal Skousen. Can I can I call you Royal? Do I call yeah. you Brother Skousen? Royal's fine. Royal's fine. Okay. Um, Royal Skousen, for those of you who don't know him or haven't heard of him, he is the kind of person that Latter-day Saint history nerds geek out about a little bit. So I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous here. I'm, I'm, I'm fangirling a little bit. Um, but we're, we're very excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us. So Royal, um, is probably the leading expert on the planet when it comes to, um, Book of Mormon analysis. Uh, but what, how would you, how would you describe your research? Cause there's, there are a lot of people that research the Book of Mormon in general, what is it that you specialize in? Well, it's the text of the Book of Mormon, the actual words, the phrases, um, and uh, the purpose of my work is twofold, to try and um, determine what the original text of the Book of Mormon was. Mm -hmm. It would have been the text that was revealed to Joseph Smith uh, in the instrument that he used, that he would see the text, I believe, the words. He read that off to his scribe. We're trying to recover that. He didn't videotape it. And uh, the closest we have to that is the original manuscript. But when we have 28% of it. Mm. And there are even mistakes in the original manuscript that uh, got through. But that's what the goal is to try and figure out what Joseph Smith was actually um, seeing uh, with the instrument, uh, the words. Um, but then there's changes that have occurred in the text, mm -hmm. errors that occur in the early transmission of the text. The scribe will mishear sometimes what Joseph Smith uh, dictated, uh, and then they will make a copy called the printer's manuscript from the original, take that to the printers for the most part. There will be mistakes made there, usually about three mistakes per page, manuscript mm -hmm. page. And uh, then the typesetter will, will set it, but he'll make mistakes. Right. So by the time we get to the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, there's lots of mistakes. And um, most of them are innocuous, not really that uh, earth-shaking, uh, but there are some that do change the meaning and would show up in translations and so forth. So my job is, number one, to try and figure out what the original text was, and number two, to describe the changes in the history of the text and where it's going to. So my work is called textual criticism. I don't do analyses like um, 
the use of the Savior's words, verily, verily, in Third Nephi, and stuff like that, uh, I find them pretty, to be honest, tedious. Mm. And uh, it's a lot of brethren like to do those kinds of things. But uh, I've, I like to do the text and uh, try and recover the original. So what you've done is essentially taken all of the editions of the Book of Mormon and you've looked at every change that has been made across editions. Yeah, well, we have we have two manuscripts, the original, 28% of it. Mm -hmm. We have the printer's manuscript, all but three lines or so from the first leaf that were worn off. Uh, so we have pretty much 99.9%, whatever yeah. that is. And... Um, then we have these editions, beginning with the 1830. That's, of course, a very important one. Other important editions, the second edition, 1837, where Joseph Smith went in and corrected much of what he perceived to be bad grammar. There were lots of complaints when the 1830 edition was published uh, of the bad grammar. Could you could you maybe give us an example or two? Well, a couple of the most notorious ones are things like um, they was yet wroth, the brothers of Nephi. They was yet wroth. Oh, how terrible! Instead of and, they were yet wroth. Yeah, and another one would be in them days that occurs twice in the text in the original text, and that was Joseph Smith changed one of those to in those days, but the other one he left. He didn't catch it, and it was only changed until in the early 1900s to in those days. So those are two typical examples that usually jolt people when they're reading. Yeah. The even the 1830s got these errors in them. Yeah. Because people would look at those and they'd say, "Well, if this is an inspired translation from God, well, why is the grammar so bad?" Okay. Well, let's look at it a different way. What sure. they're really saying is, if this is from God, why isn't it in my correct English? Hmm. All right. So, so then so, that leads to the question: What is what? What counts as correct English? That's, well, that does. And uh, one of the things that um, too many scholars in looking at the bad grammar, so-called would say is there's no way God could give this if it came from him word for word. And um, the problem with that whole theory is that they're assuming that if God gave it word for word, it'd be in their correct English. Hmm. And, and I don't think actually we can even say it's in Joseph Smith's English. Um, the work that uh, Stan Carmack and I have been doing for the last oh, six or seven years is to uh, show that all this bad grammar was actually in general usage in uh, the 15 and 1600s. You will find it in published books, uh, academic books. I've got there some that say from them days and uh, the, you know and these are these are scholars writing. Uh, since that time that expression has become uh, removed it's, it's been removed from standard English, but it remains in dialectal English, and so therefore we 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 have this objection to it. And so we have gone through all of the so-called bad grammar and been able to show that virtually all of it can be found in printed academic writing from the 15 and 1600s. Hmm. 
Along with that, we, uh, I have been arguing for over a decade now that the vocabulary of the Book of Mormon is not from Joseph Smith's time. It dates from the 1530s to about the 1730s, at least 100 years old. Uh, about the only word in the whole Book of Mormon which is past that is heft in the eight witness statement where they say we hefted hmm. or that we, we hefted these plates. But and that, that, but that is not, that's a contemporary account uh, written in 1830 right. or 1829 when they did that. And so heft came into the English language, it turns out, from Scottish. Uh, from heave, it's related to the word heave, and it came into English about uh, 1780s or so. So, but everything else, everything else in that Book of Mormon, all these vocabulary items are dated, and there are some which have been removed. So, for instance, um, there's an expression "but if," and it means unless, and um, talmage. Uh, when he did his editing of the text, removed this but if and translated it as unless, and that's what it means. Uh, it dates back to the uh, the 1600s, the last, last, actually the last citation of it in the Oxford English Dictionary is in the about, I think it's late 1500s, hmm. but if meaning unless. And, you know, you don't know it today. And it's in the original, it's in the 1830 edition and everything. So they, these things have also been removed in large part. And uh, so the language of the text has been moved up so that we can understand it, so to speak. Yeah. So Stan and I believe that that bad grammar and the vocabulary go together. And we're talking about a text that dates itself. Now, this is a real problem for those who have always believed that the Book of Mormon was given in Joseph Smith's English. And we're arguing it's not his text. He is not the translator of the actual words. They were given to him in a revealed text uh, in, a, in a translation that shows a period of time of development, uh, but which seems to have most of its syntax, its language, its sentence structure coming from the late 1500s and its vocabulary from that 1530s to 1730s, 200-year period of time. And I expect that there's some ongoing research on this. Oh yeah, we keep working on it. And some things we find, uh, which we thought were uh, only in early modern English, turn out to be in the 1700s. So we just say, well, they were in the 1700s as well. But the only one we've been able to find is heft, that uh, is a word that shows up in the late 1700s in the book. So I've got another question for you. When the words were given from Joseph Smith to Oliver Cowdery, punctuation was largely just not there in the original manuscript. There's nothing, there's no indication of it except um, in some of those summaries at the beginning of books, sometimes called prefaces or whatever, and they, if you take the one that be, we don't have the one in, for the original manuscript for first Nephi, but second Nephi we do, it's a short one, but between the items listed are dashes. 
Mm. And that's all we get. That's that's all you have in the original manuscript. Would so, there be a reason for that? Why why didn't why wasn't punctuation included? Well, punctuation for the most part is a modern um, convention added to manuscripts and so forth, largely beginning in um, early medieval period. And so if you go back and read, uh, you know, ancient Greek manuscript for the New Testament, there is no punctuation. In fact, there's no spacing between the words in the Greek. In the Hebrew, there's spacing between the words, but there's no punctuation. Hmm. And uh, punctuation is a modern kind of thing. So this actually goes along with the idea that this text is representing uh, a translation that would not have involved punctuation. We have to add it. We do. There are places where we definitely need to have punctuation. And uh, in the earliest text, which I published with Yale, we have some places where it differ from the uh, traditional interpretation of right. punctuation. So since the punctuation was added later by uh, the, the printer, correct, um, we wouldn't necessarily considered. 100% of the punctuation in the Book of Mormon to be revealed or inspired. Well, yeah, it's only been done twice, as far as I know, from scratch. That is a, a linear text, no punctuation, no capitalization at the beginning of sentences. You don't know, and you go through and you decide. And John Gilbert's the first one. He got a manuscript. He said, I didn't have punctuation. A chapter was one big long sentence, as far as it looked. And me. Uh, I had a constructed text uh, from my computerized collation, and it was, I had a purely linear text with only spaces between the words, and I did it, independent of him. Then I looked at his, and I looked at the current edition, and I looked at Grant Hardy's, made a few changes, and so forth. So we look at all these alternatives and so forth, but... I don't know anybody else that's actually done it from scratch. Now, some people have gone through, and, you know, Talmadge would have gone through the punctuation and say, oh, I don't think this one's right. We'll change it to this and so forth. But those are just altering Gilbert's, the typesetter's punctuation. Yeah. He set the punctuation as he went, for the most part. For about two-thirds of the manuscript, he would be putting in the commas and periods and all these things as he was setting the type, trying to decide what it was. For about a third, though, of the cases, he would mark up the manuscript in pencil, sometimes in ink. There were a couple places in ink. And he would mark it up before he did the actual typesetting. But he's, he's winging it most of the time. But he did a pretty good job. Yeah. He probably over-punctuated. Your, your LDS text is really over-punctuated. And, and the Yale edition is, because I have sense lines, I don't have little paragraphs for verses and stuff or any kind of paragraphs. So I can use the end of sense lines to help me with the reading of the text. So I don't need as much punctuation. In other words, instead of outlining it in chapters and verses, you go by thoughts. A like a complete thought. Yeah, it looks like they're afraid. It's broken up into phrases, much like Joseph Smith would have dictated the text. He wouldn't have dictated it like, and it came to pass that the, would not have broken it that way. He would have done it, and it came to pass that Nephi 
return to this city. You know, he would, and so that's one reason why, uh, if it is the earliest text that I'm trying to recover, we put it in sense lines because it represents in some sense how it would have been dictated. We don't know where he actually broke in doing this, but he had to have done it, and it would have been by sense lines. You just wouldn't do it in this very literalistic you know, I'm going to do three words at a time right. type thing. So having looked at the text of the Book of Mormon, perhaps more closely than anyone on the planet, and and maybe as someone who understands what there is to understand about the translation of this text or the dictation of this text, how has your research affected your personal testimony of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon? Well, it's... It isn't the basis for my testimony. I received a witness that the events of the Book of Mormon really happened, um, which I think is a better testimony than this is an inspired work from God, mm -hmm. uh, but that it really happened, because it could be inspired fiction. Some people are saying God gave this, but he made up the story. Uh, so I had a marvelous experience before I came to BYU and uh, reading, reading the Book of Mormon in a very difficult part of my life and um, reading the story of uh, the queen of King Lamoni and as she comes out of her trance and uh, says that she has seen her savior and she's been saved from an awful hell. And um, Spirit witnessed to me this really happened. So I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon that's independent of my work. And as I've done this work, I can, I can say that the Lord has never given me a correct reading. What do you mean by that? Never said, this is, yes, you got the right reading, or yes, uh, or something like that. It's, there's no been no revelation given to me, no spiritual confirmation. Yes, this is right or this is wrong. I've had experiences where the spirit indicates, go look in the Oxford English Dictionary or something like that. You know, you say, why should I do that? <laughs> you know, you argue with the spirit. <laughs> you finally go look and go, oh man, there is something here. You know, so those kind of things happen. I think the Lord uh, doesn't want to give me spiritual confirmation. He wants it to be purely scholarly based on uh, arguments from the text itself, not from my own. Um, you know, I don't want to have something here that says personal revelation, God, written in a footnote. Yeah, you separate spiritual revelation from academic right. research. But I have found, you know, I mean, my belief, there's a different kind of belief, and, uh, you know, my belief is so from the witnesses and from the original manuscript, we can see that the text was given to Joseph Smith through the instrument. He would see words. I think he could see about 30 words at a time uh, in English, and that he read those off. He wouldn't read all 30 at a time, but he'd read them off in, a, in the phrases, and the scribe would write them down and write and then read them back. There's evidence in the manuscript for that aspect of it, reading it back and so forth. Uh, when they came to names that um, you couldn't just say coriantumer, 
You had to spell it out because it can't be done by pronunciation. Even the most careful pronunciation will not get that one right. Coriantumur. M-R. You had to get M-R, and Oliver misspelled it at first, T-U-M-M-E-R, and they crossed the whole thing out, and it's written afterwards, in line, which means this happened right then and there. They didn't come back later and do it. They did it right there. And he's got the correct spelling, T-U-M-R, and it's wonderful. The R goes like this. Can you hmm. see that? A little frustrated <laughs> this, there. It, never put this flare on any R anywhere, you know, except, it, you know, it's like, hey, how can you expect me to spell this? <laughs> you can't. So we clear evidence. And, and witnesses said they would spell out the Book of Mormon names. And there it is in the manuscript, evidence for it. So I look at those kinds of things and say, yeah, we're finding evidence that this text was revealed to Joseph Smith word for word. He could see the letters. He did his best to read it off. Mistakes did occur. There's probably about three places where um, I think Joseph Smith misread what he was actually reading. Uh, awful state of woundedness, I think, is a misreading for awful state of wickedness. Hmm. I know, um, who is it that wants to make, he makes a big deal out of this awful state of woundedness. But anyway, you know, it, but it, it's really quite impossible. But, and, uh, and I would maybe add um, these details that you're, you're telling us about, they might seem like minor details, but, but what you're showing is the actual evidence that we have in front of us, the academic evidence. And if you're going to say, you know, Joseph Smith was a fraud, you still have to incorporate this evidence yeah, yeah. because it's there. Like this isn't, this isn't a spiritual argument. This is, it's right there in the text. If Joseph was a fraud, you still have to figure out why he is dictating well, this, why Oliver Cowdery you got is. This, it's got this thing. This thing actually exists. You know, mine and 1830, the manuscripts actually exist. So, you know, this is why I see a clear difference between this as a testimony building item versus, say, the first vision. First vision's got a big problem. Only Joseph Smith can tell it. There are no, there are no know, original dictation no, manuscripts. Well, there's nobody with him that can say, yes, I was with him and this is what happened. No scribes. And, and Jesus didn't leave his signature on something, you know. I mean, there's just nothing besides Joseph Smith's statement. But in this case, you have this text to deal with. You can't just simply throw it away. Now, that's what most, I think most scholars that don't believe in the Book of Mormon just throw it away. They ignore it. But when you look at these details, the details are extremely important in demonstrating what's really going on. And, uh, and we can be blind to it. You can see and yet not see. And I think that um, that's, you see, one thing I've always tried to really carefully look at is what witnesses say was taking place then can we find evidence for it? And generally, we can find evidence for their statements, except for one big one that they they really believe, they all believe that Joseph, the scribe could not write down anything incorrect. Mm. No spelling errors. That's a that's no grammar errors, errors, isn't it? All of them. 
or a statement from David Whitmer it's saying not something David that Whitmer, It's from Martin Harris. It's from Emma. It's from uh, not Oliver. He didn't ever say much. But they all, all the, all the other witnesses are saying that it was, it had to be perfect, or they could not go on. Well, this is false, right? We just this, it's full of spelling errors to begin with. But there are even readings which are impossible, like Ishmael and also his whole whole. Whole whole. H o l e h o l e. So what is it? Well, Oliver, when he made the printers from it, had to guess. It's called a conjecture. He guessed it. It meant household, Ishmael, and also his household. I think it was whole household. But in any event, it's clear proof that the scribe could make a mistake, and they went on. It disproves all of these statements. Now, why did they believe it? See, that's what, then you have to deal with, well, why are they believing this? And I think the evidence is very clear. They're seeing, they're, they're hearing Joseph Smith spell out names. So they think, they make the false claim that, oh, well, they're making sure that everything's letter perfect. Mm. And they, they, they transfer that to everything. They're, so perhaps a, a false assumption that has been carried on through tradition and a lot of people today still might believe that. That's right. They, but the evidence isn't there. The evidence is not there. They said the instrument would not let them go. They all say this, and they're, and they're wrong. Emmas thinks the instrument could tell Joseph when she was making a mistake and not to go on. But we don't find any evidence for it. We don't have Emmas stuff. We don't know. But, I mean, any of the others, we just have to look at uh, what the actual manuscripts shows us. So sometimes what witnesses are saying are disprovable. And sometimes it can be confirmed. You know, they are spelling out names, Book of Mormon names. They don't spell out Bible names. You can misspell Isaiah just any old way you want. <laughs> so a lot of people in our audience, um, they might be reading the Book of Mormon for the first time. Or they, they might be new members of the church. They might not be members. They might just be looking to learn more about our faith. What advice would you have for them as they crack open this text? Well, read it in the Yale edition. <laughs> <laughs> I have the Yale edition. Well, I just don't. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it is true. I think you can get your you can get a testimony reading the Book of Mormon from virtually, I guess, any any edition. I'm sure, you know, most of the examples you have, people reading the standard text. Um, but I think you have to read it with an open mind um, and not decide in advance anything, you know, read mm -hmm. this story. And, uh, and there are certain parts of it that I think are more dramatic and helpful. Um, like, I think the story of Ammon on his missionary efforts to Lamoni and so forth is one of the great stories. And there are other ones which are tremendously moving. Um, there are others that, you know, are less so. You know, of course, we have all those Isaiah passages that most people struggle <laughs> with. Uh, and uh, so you just have to deal with... Uh, I think Boyd K. Packer in his conference talk said 
to skip it if you need to. <laughs> they took that out in the printed version. Did they really? I, from what I, I never, I never could find it, but <laughs> I, I heard him say it. You know, I don't skip it, but uh, but you know, it, it wouldn't hurt to skip it. I don't think you yeah. need to read it. Take what you can handle. So you know, there are lots of lots of really great um, discourses and and stories told um, that are quite. A moving and uh, spiritual uh, food. So you know, I don't think maybe maybe some people have done this kind of thing, tried to identify the better parts of the, <laughs> the mm. Book of Mormon for for reading. Royal Skousen, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to make sure we put up on the screen here. Editor, this is this is a, an announcement for the editor. Make sure you put up all of Royal Skousen's books on, <laughs> on the, the, the video here because you have quite a few of them. And uh, your, your analysis of textual variations of the Book of Mormon, yeah. variants in the Book of Mormon, those are available um for free online through book first of edition Central. is first edition the is. first edition and that was produced over from 2004 to 2009 does that make six yes six years one at one each year and it goes through all the changes in in well the... all except it, it will only do the first grammatical ones okay I mean, the first of any grammatical one then it just leaves them yeah. Uh, the, the grammatical changes, you have to go to uh, another couple books that list all the grammatical changes. But uh, but it'll go through everything, basically, and you can get it online, the first edition. But there's a second edition. This is uh, I brought the first edition here for 2004, mm. part one. Um, but if you're going to, you know, you look at the Yale edition at the end, it just lists all these changes, the important ones. But for most people, they don't seem very significant or they're they're overwhelmed by them. But if you read them, you'll see how important they are in understanding the text. And it's just kind of fun. It's just kind of fun to, to know, you know, reading the the 1981 edition of the Book of Mormon and being able to see, you know, this reading is great, but... It was different. This word was different in the in the earliest text. You know, yeah, it's just kind yeah. of fun to do well, that. Well, very often, yeah, it's significantly more helpful, mm -hmm. I think, in understanding the text. So, thanks for joining us, Royal. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel if you haven't. Check out Royal stuff, and there are still a couple more books on the way, if I understand correctly. Yeah, we're uh, there's there's um, seven and eight part seven and eight of the last volume three the transmission of the text goes through that in seven and eight is textual criticism of the Book of Mormon, the principles and all of that kind of thing. And also uh, for the Yale edition, we are doing a second edition, uh, a paperback version. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, less heavy than this big thing. Yeah. And, um, and a complete new introduction that explains how I got the text from uh, the sources and so forth. So it's a, it's a textual critic's introduction rather than, uh, than the kind of thing that Grant Hardy did for the first edition. Amazing. Guys, That's coming. check it out. And we'll see you next time. See ya.
Thanks for listening. If you want to watch our videos, check us out on YouTube or shoot us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.